Well, we're taking up a passage of Scripture today, really half of an entire Old Testament book, looking at 1 Samuel. And the title of this morning's message is Escaping Abuse. I can't think of a more difficult or challenging topic to talk about in the amount of time that we have on a Sunday morning in a worship service. But we're going to tackle it. I feel led of the Lord. We've been a series now for several weeks, um, and we've already touched on four difficult kinds of relationships and how God's Word speaks to us in, in those relationships. And one of the best ways we learn how to do relationships better and uh, we learn from God's Word is by seeing what happens when they're not done right, when they're very wrong. And today we're going to look at a very kind of wrong kind of relationship, very tough to love in that circumstance. We're going to look at an abusive relationship. What happens in an abusive relationship? How can you escape from that? What does God's Word have to say about that? So why is that important that we study it? Well, let me share with you some facts. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 7 million women a year are physically or sexually assaulted by someone that is an intimate partner, someone that they know, someone that's close. 7 million. I did the math on that this morning. That's 13 women a minute. 13 women every minute being abused. Three of them will die today. And 15 million kids are going to be exposed to that violence. The most vulnerable age at which a young woman is exposed to that kind of violence is between the ages of 16 and 24. One in four girls and one in six boys will be abused sexually before the age of 18. Battering, hitting, is a leading cause of injury in women ages 15 to 44. More than rape, mugging, and car accidents combined. It's the second or third leading cause of death among pregnant women. Statistically, it's far more dangerous for women to go home at night than just to walk down any street in an American city. And of course, this is a violation of what marriage should be. Oftentimes, Christians who take the Bible seriously are condemned because of our teaching about husbands and wives. And yet the Scripture tells us that marriage, as God intended it to be, is to be a message from God to the world of how much He loves the church and how the church loves Him. That in response to a husband's love, God's love for us, the church or the spouse responds with a love that yields to Him. And so it's a beautiful picture, and abuse was never supposed to be a part of it hitting, yelling, screaming, and the kind of violence that we're touching on today. There was not a a week that went by, unfortunately. The church rarely addresses this issue. And there wasn't a week that went by when I worked at the Arkansas Baptist State Convention that we didn't get a report or one or two or three or four or more of some kind of abuse, physical or sexual abuse, occurring at the hands of someone in a church, be it a pastor, a staff member, a deacon, a church leader, Sunday school teacher, someone. And it is appalling. I'm defining abuse today as sin. It's a sin which has its origins in Satan himself, who, rebelling against God according to the Old Testament, determined to exert his will against the will of God who wants to exert control over you and over your family and over your life. 
Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world, and he wants to control, and he wants to rule your life. What constitutes abuse? When one person misuses another for wrong purposes, it's abuse. Using someone as a punching bag, as a receptacle for your rage, that's abuse. Using or controlling someone for your own gratification is abuse. Using words, not even fists, to insult, degrade, humiliate, intimidate, or threaten is abuse. I want to define abuse this way today. It's not the only definition. But I want to define it today using the key words that I think will help you and I be a little more sensitive to this. Abuse is a repeated misuse of power in order to control the decisions and behavior of another person. Now, if you're using your listening guide and your worship folder, those are the first two blanks, and I, on purpose, had you write in the word repeated and the word control. You see, when abuse occurs, the kind that we're talking about today, it's not something that happens just one time. There's a sense in which you and I are all guilty of abusing or misusing someone else at one time or another. We have, we have done something, said something, done something hurtful to someone else. And an instance of abuse does not make you an abuser. The key is the concept of something that is a pattern or something that is repeated. And also the motive is different. When someone is a chronic abuser, they're not simply losing control. They're not simply someone with a bad temper. But when someone is abusive to someone else, they're not losing control. They're trying to exert control over another individual. I brought with me uh, a way of picturing that. You know, sometimes we think, well, if someone is an abuser, what they need to learn to do is control themselves. And so what we do is we have this picture of they need to learn to, to control themselves, bind themselves up, and exercise self-control. That is a fruit of the Spirit, is to exercise of self-control. But see, that's not the abuser's problem. The abuser's problem is not just their inability to control themselves. They're, the abuser's problem is that they want to control you. They want to wrap you up. And by whatever means of of exertion of power that they want to use. They want to do it. They want to control you. And so the solution or the healing of someone who is an abuser is not just learning to control themselves. It's learning to stop trying to control others. The story of Saul and David is a story of abuse. King Saul was the first king of Israel. When he was first anointed king, Saul was a man who was sensitive to God. He did not have a high view of himself, and so he was dependent on God. But after he'd been king a while, that all changed. And Saul became independent, didn't feel he needed God as much, began making decisions without consulting the Lord and doing his own thing as king. And so it got to a place where he lost his right to rule. Samuel the prophet informed Saul of this and then went and looked for the next king that God was going to raise up in Saul's place. That, that king was a, the eighth son of a man named Jesse, and his name was David. When Samuel went to find David, he goes to Jesse's house, and he asks to meet his sons. Jesse brings them out one by one by one. He meets seven of the boys, and the Spirit of God in him did not bear witness that these, any of these were the next king. So, so Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you have any more boys? That tells you something about the relationship between father and son because father goes, oh yeah, we got one more. 
Number eight, David, he's out keeping the sheep, and he brings David in, and of course, uh, Samuel recognizes that this is the next king, and he anoints him, and the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, that the Holy Spirit of God comes on David and stays with him the rest of his life. Now, what's interesting is that while this is happening, God is giving his spirit to David to be the next king. He's withdrawing his spirit from Saul, who is the present king. As a consequence of that, an evil spirit begins to torment Saul, and he begins to lose it mentally. He loses it mentally, he loses it emotionally, and the only way he can calm down, it's discovered, is, is one of the servants says, hey, I know this guy named David, he plays music really well, I think if he came and played for you, you'd feel better. And so the first encounter between Saul and David is when he played music to help Saul keep his sanity. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 21, so David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. Saul loved David at first. Well, then as the story unfolds, we have the story of David and Goliath. While living in Saul's household and occasionally going home for visits with his family, there's this battle that develops between the Philistines and the people of Israel. A challenger comes out from the Philistines, a huge man named Goliath, and he says, send someone against me. And no one would do it except the boy David. And you know the story. David goes out, confronts him, and uh, uses his sling, and he takes down the giant, and there's this incredible victory that occurs. Saul is enamored with David even more. No longer is he just a musician that drives away his pain and agony. He's someone he wants him to be part of his household. And immediately you begin to see some of the controlling parts of Saul's personality. He brings David in, and the Bible says that he wouldn't let him go home anymore after this. He isolates him. He keeps him from his own family. As the story continues, though, things change rapidly when Saul hears the people celebrating David's victories over the Philistines. They begin shouting in the streets, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, that, Saul didn't like that. And in fact, the Bible says in chapter 18, verse 8, then Saul was very angry. And then it says, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. He's jealous. He's jealous of the favor that David has with the people and even with members of his own household. So what happens next is very telling. In chapter 18, verse 10, as he commonly did, the Bible says David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hands. In the rest of the book, it seems like there's always a spear in Saul's hand. There's a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David. You know, the Bible is very practical and very honest. And here's a situation that's getting worse and worse and worse. And David becomes for you and me a model of how to handle or escape abuse. You may not be experiencing abuse right now in your life. You may, maybe something that happened to you years ago as a child or as a young adult, and maybe it's not happening now. But I promise you that even if it's not happening in your household, it's happening to someone that you know. It's happening to someone close to you. And so may God give us wisdom, and may God give us direction in how to respond to people who are being abused. Well, what does David teach us? How can you escape from an abusive relationship? Well, first of all, turn to the Lord. 
And David's a model for this. Turn to the Lord. You need guidance. You need protection. You need healing. And God can give you that. And David experienced all kinds of abuse in his life. And one of the ways he processed that was he kept a journal. And uh, we call that journal the book of Psalms. He wrote most of them. And if you read carefully, the Psalms is an expression of his feelings, which is one of the ways you and I heal. He expresses his feelings. He also writes out his prayers. And as you read the Psalms, you discover that David experienced abuse, not just from Saul, but David experienced abuse from lots of different directions. For example, in Psalm 102, verse 8, he says, My enemies reproach me all day long, nonstop aggression and aggravation from some people. In Psalm 69, verse 19, he says, You know the insults I endure. This is a prayer. My shame and disgrace, insults have broken my heart. And he's experienced humiliation and ridicule. In Psalm 27, verse 10, he's experienced neglect. And that's why I suspect happened in his own home. When my mother and father forsake me, worst case scenario, then the Lord will take care of me. The Lord will protect me. And so growing up the youngest of eight boys, stuck all day long out there by himself with the sheep, David learned some incredibly valuable lessons about his relationship to God. The Lord is my shepherd. He takes care of me when no one else will take care of me. So how did he respond to abuse? Well, he turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. And practically, that means he leaned on the Lord. Every decision David made, he turned to God. The Bible says repeatedly that he inquired of the Lord before his journeys, before his battles, before his major decisions. He he leaned on God. You can even hear it as he approaches Goliath. And Goliath is breathing threats and and he's going to try to kill him. And David speaks to him. Listen to what he says. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. In other words, you have weapons of power. You have violence. You have cruelty. You're an experienced man of war. You're a tough dude. He says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Little boy, young man, not experienced in war. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Do you hear his dependence on God? Do you hear his faith in God? Do you see that this is a man that's turned to him? So when someone comes at you, you have the Lord. You can turn to him. This is not weakness. The Bible calls it wisdom. As Saul's abuse of David ramped up, there are statements that we read about David like this. While he's being mean and cruel, in chapter 18, verse 14, it says, And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And that's where you want to be this morning. If you're a person that's experiencing that right now, I want to encourage you first to turn to the Lord. Say, Lord, save me. Lord, teach me. Lord, guide me. Lord, rescue me. Well, there's a second thing we learned from David. How can you escape abuse? Secondly, tell someone what is happening. Tell someone. You know, there's nothing that's going to change unless you do this. It's not going to get better. You've got to let someone know. It's normal not to want anybody to know. There's a saying in recovery, in the recovery world, people that deal therapeutic with people who are recovering from things like abuse and other, other things, and the saying goes like this, I'm only as sick as my secrets. I'm only as sick as my secrets. You see, something happens when something's a secret and we no longer keep it a secret. We expose it. 
And when you expose something to the truth of God's Word, when you expose it to the light, darkness loses its power. It loses something. And it's so important that you and I learn to tell the things that are happening to us in that kind of scenario. You know, if you're walking out through the woods and you come up on a a log laying on the ground or a stone, and you know what goes on underneath those stones and those stumps, don't you? What's usually under there? All kinds of what? Bugs, critters. And, and they're not under there because they love sunshine. They're under there because they love darkness. And they do what they do best in the dark. Now, when you roll over that log or you pull over that, that rock and they are exposed to the light, all those critters don't suddenly look up at you and say, thank you for exposing us to the light, do they? What do they do? They scurry. They hide. They want to keep doing what they're doing in the darkness, but you have exposed them to the light, and they don't want the light. And that's why it's so important that you and I tell someone what is happening. There are two key people in David's life that he tells. One of them is Samuel. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 18, the Bible says that David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He told Saul, Samuel everything that Saul had done. And, and that gives the person you talk to, that gives them an opportunity to help you get a, a hand on what's really happening. They can help you see that what's happening is not normal. Abuse is not okay. They can affirm the fact that, yeah, you're right. What you're sensing that this isn't right, it's not right. And they can provide support to you. And you need that. It takes encouragement sometimes to do the right thing. And they can support you. They can help protect you in the face of someone who's making threats against you. Uh, Jonathan was the son of Saul, the king. Knew his daddy better than David. Knew what his daddy was capable of. Knew what he was like. And, and Jonathan became a friend to David and helped protect David. In chapter 20, verse 13, he says, If it pleases my father to do you evil then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And so David had at least two people. He had Samuel and he had Jonathan, people he could talk to, and he took steps to protect himself from Saul's behavior. He told someone what was going on. He didn't try to keep it a secret. He did not try to spare Saul the consequences of being exposed for his action. How can you escape from an abusive relationship? Turn to the Lord. Tell someone. But there's a third thing we can do. David would tell us to go to a safe place when you're being physically harmed or threatened. Go to a safe place. You say, but Don, I thought that when we were being persecuted, when we were experiencing suffering, that what we needed to do was to be Christ-like is to endure it and endure it well. Well, there's some truth to that. The book that we're going to study this summer, 1 Peter, is a book that has much to say to us about suffering and how to endure suffering. One of the key passages in that book is chapter 2, verse 20 of 1 Peter. It says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And you say so, and it goes on, describes how Jesus suffered for us. 
and, um, and he was silent, and he didn't respond in kind to the abuse that was heaped on him. You say, and then right after that, it talks about a wife with an unbelieving husband. And so some people have interpreted that to say that when a wife is being abused, she should never leave her home. She should never leave her house, never leave her husband. I want you to know that that's an abuse of this passage of Scripture. That in this particular passage of Scripture, when the Bible tells us that we should suffer in a certain manner, it's when you don't have a choice. Jesus going to the cross didn't have a choice. If there was any other way to redeem mankind, he would have taken it. He told the Father, if there's another way, he said it in the garden. He said, but nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. And so there was no choice. In that day and time in the Roman culture, if you were a father, the head of the house, you had the right of life and death over everybody in that house. And so a Christian wife in that environment, she didn't have a choice. She was in that environment. She didn't have anywhere to go. She couldn't call 911. There was no shelter she could turn to, no church she could turn to that could really do anything about it. She was in a situation where she had no choice. And in that case, what does he say? Suffer for doing what's right. Bless your enemy. Bless your husband. Bless in that kind of circumstance. He says, as Jesus was silent, you likewise are silent. doesn't mean you're just quiet and never say anything. It means that because when they're abusive and they're saying terrible things at you, you don't come back and say, well, you're so-and-so too. You don't come back and respond in kind with all the stuff that they're heaping on you. So the difference is, is that in most of the Scripture, the Bible teaches us that when you are being persecuted, when you're being harmed, when you're being abused, get out of there. Most of the Bible teaches us to leave. The counsel to escape is seen in the book of Acts over and over again. In Acts 9, Paul escapes when a plot became known to him. The disciples took him by night. He goes over the wall. Saul and Barnabas in Acts 14, there was a violent attempt made by Gentiles and Jews on their life to abuse and stone them. But they became aware of it, it says, and they fled. They didn't hang around, say, throw me another rock. They didn't do it. They got out of there. You say, well, what about Jesus, Pastor? Jesus died on the cross, and uh, he didn't escape. Well, no, not in the case of the cross, but the, throughout the conduct of his ministry, he didn't hang around when they were going to hurt him. In the book of John, I found at least three instances of that. There's more than this. I see it in Matthew also, but in John eight fifty nine, it says, Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. In John chapter 11, verse 53, it says, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, how did Jesus respond? He no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there. In John 10, verse 31, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and they had some discussion about that. And therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand, and he went away beyond the Jordan. Escape when you can. Suffer when it's unavoidable. And believe me, you're going to have enough suffering without having to go look for it. So Saul, what did David do? Well, the Bible tells us that Saul threw a spear at David, not once but twice. David got out of the way. He escaped, but he didn't leave Saul or the household of the king. Saul was frustrated. He says, well, I'm not killing him with my hand. I'm going to set him up in a trap. And he works out this elaborate ruse to marry his daughter Michael and set up a deal where in order to be worthy to be the king's son-in-law, he has to go and kill 200 Philistines, thinking the Philistines would kill him. 
Well, it didn't work out that way. He killed the Philistines. David keeps getting more and more successful. Saul gets more and more afraid and more and more angry. So then he turns to his household in chapter 19. He says, would someone please kill David? Says it to his servants, says it to all of his family. Jonathan, who loves David, turns to his daddy and says, Daddy, how can you do that? He's never hurt you. He's never harmed you. He's never done anything against you. And, um, and Saul listens to his son, and he experiences regret and remorse. And he says, Son, you're right. I'm sorry. And it says that David was able to remain in the house. But it didn't last long because it says that David was doing his music thing for Saul. And in chapter 19, verse 9, David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Three times he tried to spear him with a spear. The third time, David left. He never went back. He never went back. Saul begins to give pursuit to David, chases him, marshals every resource known to uh, the king to try to get people to catch David. If you helped David along the way, you were going to suffer the king's wrath. There were innocent people killed because Saul thought, thought that they helped David. David, in the process, accumulates a small army of about 400 malcontent men, but they are loyal to him. They love him, and they begin to do great things for the nation of Israel while they're on the run from Saul. On two separate occasions, David confronts Saul, we'll talk about that in a moment, from a distance with a small army, confronts Saul and says, look, I never did anything to you. I never did anything to hurt you, never did anything to harm you. I never did anything against you. And in hearing that, the Bible says that Saul, again, expresses remorse and a form of repentance and he stops chasing David. But David didn't go home. The first time it happened, there was peace for a while. And then Saul begins to chase him again. And then they had another confrontation. He says he's remorseful. And what you're seeing there in the relationship between Saul and David is too often what happens in the case of an abuser and abused person. Is that there's a cycle that takes place. Abuse occurs. Some harm is done. Injury is made. Words are said. That person experiences remorse, says, I'm sorry, sweetheart, I won't do it again. And there's a period of peace, and then he does it again. And he does it again and again and again and again. Or that person you're in an abusive relationship with does it again and again and again. And it tends to escalate. And David left, and he never went back. In uh, the third time it happened, where Saul experienced and verbalized remorse, you're wondering as a reader, is it finally going to happen? Are they going to make up? Is David going to be able to go home? In the very next verse, 1 Samuel 27, 1, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. This is right after Saul said, I'm sorry. He says, I'm going to perish someday by this guy. This guy's going to kill me. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Two observations. David left when he was threatened. He took himself completely off the board when the cycle repeated itself again and again and again. So when you're threatened with physical harm, damage that you feel like is life-threatening or that can 
um, destroy you or your family or your children. Uh, there's nothing spiritual about staying there. And I believe that God's word would be to get out of that arena and stop being a punching bag for somebody that really needs help. There was a young girl, young lady, 20-something-year-old girl named Mary. I'm going to give her the name Mary, who came to see me one day at my office at a church where I was serving. And she had been part of the single adult group that I had been working with. And she said, Don, uh, I got to tell you what's happening, and I don't know what to do. She said, I, I'm on my own. I have my own job. I pay my own bills. But I've got this individual who has been abusive to me throughout my life and calls me all the time and harasses me at work, uh, shows up at my apartment unannounced. She had a roommate, but still shows up unannounced and uh, yelled at her and screamed at her because she wouldn't come with him. She was threatened with him essentially kidnapping her and taking her to his home. He had somehow got her roommate to believe that he was trying to do something for her good. And abusers are sometimes very good at that. They can get pastors to trust them. They can get other people to trust them. And he had done that with her roommate. So even her roommate was kind of beginning to get in on it. You should listen to him. You should do what he says. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you. She said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, Mary, what you need to do is disappear. She said, what do you mean? I said, you need to disappear. And after a couple of days conversation and talking to some of our church leaders, we put together money for her to get a plane ticket. And on an afternoon when her roommate was not at home, myself and some other men went to her apartment. We got her stuff out while her roommate was gone. And we put her on her plane, flew her to another state where she was with family and she was safe. And then we monitored all communication for several months after that so that anything that this person had to say to her, we would say, well, we'll get the message to her and if she wants to respond to you, that's her choice. We made her disappear. You need friends like that. I'm not a licensed clinical counselor. I don't ever project myself as that. I tell people when they come in for counsel, I don't do licensed therapy kind of stuff. I don't do that. I said, I'm a pastor. I provide biblical counsel for people that I shepherd to try to help them understand what God wants them to do based on his word, and I'll help people in that way. I'll tell you what I can do. I can get, I can get between a jerk and somebody that's being hurt, and you can too. You can too. So if you're being harmed, David would say, you don't have to stay there. And if it's a pattern that's getting worse, you need to protect yourself. You may need to disappear. Number four, how can you escape an abusive relationship? Confront the abuser, but don't do it alone. Confront the abuser, but don't do it alone. You say, well, pastor, shouldn't I try to do something to salvage the relationship? Well, even by the very question, you're acting like it's something wrong with you, that the relationship is broken because they've done something wrong, you've done something wrong. You've got to understand, when you're in an abusive relationship, it's not your fault. It's your problem but it's not your fault. And, and we can work on the relationship till Jesus comes back, but it's not going to fix the problem. It's not going to address the issue. And so in this particular scenario, 
you may need to confront that person. You may need to talk to that person, but they have controlled you for so long. Remember, the issue is control and a pattern of control that you may not be able to voice what you need to say. And so it's important to have people in your life who will come with you and who will stand with you. David did confront Saul twice. Each time he did it, he did it from a great distance and with a small army. One example, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, snuck into camp, stole his spear and water jug, came out the other side. He didn't kill him, but from a ravine and with 400 guys standing with him, he told Saul, he said, man, why are you doing this to me? In fact, in 1 Samuel 26, verse 12, it says, So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw it or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. God helps you. Now David went over to the other side and stood on top of a hill, afar off, a great distance being between them. Every word of God's inspired. And David called out. So you need distance and you need a small army. You need the police. You need a pastor who'll stand between you and the abuser. You need someone who'll be an advocate for you, who'll give you good counsel, wise counsel about how to manage a very dangerous and difficult situation. You need godly friends who'll pray with you, who encourage you, and who'll stand with you through that very difficult journey. Confront the abuser, but don't do it alone. And then number five, how can you escape an abusive relationship? Discover the life that God has for you. Abuse can continue to destroy your life years after you have been separated from the abuser himself or herself. It can continue to engender fear, anxiety, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness in you. It can cause you to damage all of your present relationships because of the ongoing effects of that abuse. Now, David wisely knew better than that because he did turn to the Lord. His walk with God changed the trajectory of his life. If David were standing here this morning, he would tell you at least three things that you need to know in order for your life to change if you've been abused. First, you are not the cause of the abuse. David once thought that. Early in the process, when he was trying to get his head around what was taking place between he and Saul, he meets with Jonathan in chapter 20, verse 1, and it says, Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, listen to this, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Do you hear I carrying responsibility for what's happening. He thinks, I've done this. I've caused this. Somehow it's my fault. And, and he would say, because he didn't stay in this place, he would say, you are not the cause of the abuse. It is sin in the heart of another person. And it doesn't matter what you may have said. No one's perfect. We know that. You may have said things that aren't right, done things that aren't right. You may have reacted harshly or difficult, surely you can deal with the Lord with that, but you are not the cause of the abuse. Secondly, David would say you are not responsible to fix the abuser. Whether it's to correct them or bring them to justice or try to get help for them 
or whether it's to take out vengeance on your own to get some kind of revenge. No matter what the case, God says, hands off, hands off. In Romans, he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Keep your hands off. And David learned this. In chapter 26, verse 9, uh, his men wanted to kill Saul when he was asleep in that tent that night. They were running from Saul, but they were all asleep in a deep sleep, and they had an opportunity to kill him. Abishai, one of David's lieutenants, said, let's kill him. And in chapter 26, verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The point is, it's not my business what happens to Saul. It's not my business to fix Saul. It's not my business to correct him. That's between him and God. And uh, he said, so I'm not going to kill him. So you're not responsible. Thirdly, you are responsible for the kind of person that you become. It's a sad fact that abused people often grow up to become abusers themselves. That often the way we were treated, the way that someone treated you that you hated, and that hurt you so badly, so many times we find that as our default way of treating someone else. You don't want to be like that. You want to become a very different kind of person. There was a moment in David's journey. It's really striking. I, if you've got time, I'd encourage you to, to start the story of David, 1 Samuel 16, and just read all the way to the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And um, it's just a stunning story. And David, most of the time, he behaves wisely. And he's leaning on the Lord. He's inquiring of the Lord before he goes into battle. Everything he does, he's just checking it out with the Lord. And then there's this one moment, though. He meets this guy named Nabal. And Nabal is Hebrew for jerk, I think. Because David provided protection for him from the Philistines, protected his shepherds, protected his stuff. And, and David said, could you help us out with some, you know, some welfare, some food, please? He asked him nicely. And, and Nabal just blew him off, just treated him terribly. And David, who had been mistreated by Saul all these years, uh, he feels something at this moment. 1 Samuel 25, verse 21, says, Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. And suddenly you see her rising up in David, all of this anger, all of this hurt, all of this bitterness that up to now you have not seen it. When he had a chance to kill Saul, he didn't do it. And he's just again and again, he's having to deal with Saul. And now comes Nabal, and it's like, I've had it. I've had it. I've had this, this, is, this guy, I'm tired of people treating me this way, and this is the guy that I'm going to let it go on. As he was riding with his 400 men to take care of one guy, as he was riding to deal with Nabal, Nabal's wife, a godly woman named Abigail, realizes what's about to happen. And Abigail quickly grabs up some groceries, and she rides out to meet David, and she intervenes. And she says, look, 
She says, David, I know that someday you're going to be the king. God is going to make you the king. And when you become the king, you don't want what you're about to do today in your past. And David stopped. David listened to her. In chapter 25, verse 30, David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. And that turning point occurs in David's heart. He says, I'm recognizing I was about to do something that Saul would have done. I was about to become like the very man that's pursuing me and that has hurt me. And he chooses not to do it. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe as you look back over the course of your life and someone did something to you or did it for years to you, and um, on average one out of four women, even in church, have been abused, and a large number of men, and you look back over that and you look at how you're treating people today, Is there any connection between how you were treated and how you're treating people? See, God wants to change you. God wants you to become responsible for who you are. You can't blame that on somebody in your past. You can't blame it on other people. Who you are is between you and God. The way you're living and the way you're treating others is between you and the Lord. And only the Lord Jesus can change you. Here's the bottom line. You can escape an abuser, but Jesus can heal the hurt. You may have escaped, but only Jesus can heal the hurt. And heal it in such a way that you become a new man, you become a new kind of woman. You see, Jesus doesn't ignore the fact that hurtful things have happened to you. But let me tell you what he does. He takes everything that's happened to you, good, bad, hurtful, evil, whatever it was, and this is what he does. He says, if you'll love me, I promise to take everything that's happened to you, and I'm going to weave it together in such a way so that it ultimately winds up for your benefit and your good. And he uses even the darkest moments of your life to draw you closer to him and ultimately not to make you more dark, but to make you more like Jesus. And so this morning I want to invite you, when we stand and sing, part of our worship is to respond to the word of the Lord, to respond to what he's saying to us. That you would just turn to the Lord in your heart and say, oh God, I realize I've been blaming everybody else for my actions and my words and what I've been saying, but today, Lord, I'm turning to you and I'm asking you, oh God, forgive me. And I want you to take out of me this old dark heart of bitterness and hurt and meanness and anger. I want you to take that out of me. And I want you to put in me a heart that's like Jesus. And I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ to forgive me for my sins and to change me from the inside out. I want to be a different kind of man. I want to be a different kind of person. If you're a person who's currently experiencing abuse, would you please reach out and get help? There are ways to find help in Arkansas, all kinds of pathways to find assistance. We don't have as much in Cross County as I would like, but there's even ways to get help here. And reach out, talk to someone, talk to one of our pastors, come see me, but reach out to someone. If you're in immediate danger, call the authorities. Don't don't just let this happen. Get some help. But as you move on past that, would you let Jesus Christ heal your broken heart? If you need to trust Christ today in just a moment when we stand and sing, there'll be pastors standing here at the front. We're here because we love you. We want to help you hear God. We want to help you pray and do whatever it is he's leading you to do next. 
The steps are open here. You may just want to come and pray. You may want to grab a friend and come and pray for yourself or someone that you love, someone that you care for. After first hour, someone talked to me and said, look, I know someone right now is going through this. What can they do? What's the next step? And we talked about very practically what they need to do next and, um, and in a way that I believe honors the Lord and is in keeping with what we've studied today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth, and it is like a sword indeed. Your word is like a sword that pierces deeply into our heart and helps clear out the darkness, helps clear out the fog, helps clear out the confusion, and gives us in a crystal clear way what we need to do with our life, how we need to respond to you. So first, Lord, we say thank you for your truth that sets the captive free. I thank you, Lord, that in your word you have said that you came not only to heal the brokenhearted, but to set the oppressed free. And so I pray this morning for that individual, that person who this morning is hurting and crying out for relief from what they're experiencing. And I pray that you would hear their cry. Fathers, we stand together. Would your Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, now do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Shine light in the darkness. Convict us. Convince us of what is right and wrong and what we need to do next. Thank you for your love. Thank you for healing us through the power of that love. Thank you for the lives that you want to change even today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.